Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Hello, you are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madson. We'll start today's news with news from Louisville. Old Town Louisville's skyline will change as the sign for the Empire Lounge and Restaurant comes down after nearly 15 years in business. The Empire announced on social media that the restaurant was closing. James Beard nominated chef Jim Cohen and his daughter Lexi Scott opened the Empire back in 2008 and Jeff Osaka became a partial owner in 2019 with Ken Wolf. Osaka stepped away from the business partnership in late 2002 and a local chef was going to partner with Wolf. However, Osaka said that the cards were already dealt against them as keeping the restaurant running was tough. I was only in charge for a few years, but the Empire has a soft spot in my heart. You know, I love Louisville, Osaka said. The Empire served elevated American classics, according to front of house manager Emma Hempton. She has been working at the restaurant for more than a year. Hempton said that the Empire is like eating at a nice American diner in New York during the 1980s. The restaurant had, a, had American classics from a steak and frites meal to a traditional Colorado and Coors Light beer. Osaka described the restaurant as Americana and the go-to place for many Louisville residents. Osaka said that he has been receiving many messages from Louisville residents saying that they will miss the empire. He said that the empire hosted many graduation parties, bridal showers, and other celebrations, and the restaurant will live on in those happy memories. He added that he has even received messages from people who no longer live in the area, thanking the restaurant for their happy moments and saying goodbye. Hempen said that since the closure announcement, many residents have come in to have their last moment in the restaurant. And she also said that approximately 25 staff members are keeping their heads up despite the closure. We are in a place where we are all sad, but we're really proud of the work that we did, Hempen said. She also said that she watched the restaurant go from a very dark place to a brighter place through surviving the pandemic lockdowns and a temporary closure due to the Marshall Fire. Osaka said that maintaining the restaurant became difficult after those two events. Hempen said that despite the restaurant's best efforts, business became unpredictable during the COVID-19 pandemic. Osaka said that the restaurant had to close for a few months because of the pandemic, but slowly reopened following city-mandated social distancing restrictions. He said that the restrictions were being lifted slowly, and 2021 was a good year. 
But, however, the empire then had to close for almost two weeks during the Marshall Fire. Osaka said that any business that had to use water had to close as the city had to make sure that the water was not contaminated after the fire. Osaka said that the restaurant still had a lot of food in the restaurant during that closure. It did not want it to go to waste, so the empire launched a temporary soup kitchen. The empire gave out soups and stews and bread for fire survivors and for the community. He said that while the closure hurt the restaurant, the empire staff was happy to help the community. Osaka said that the restaurant being dealt those blows took its toll. He also said the Empire's, Empire is one of the largest restaurants in Louisville at 5,000 square feet with a huge basement. He said that the big space meant a lot of moving parts. Hempen said that recently there was a silent disco dance party at the Empire, and she really enjoyed that. She said that the party gave staff headphones to join in on a silent disco. She said that the staff was able to get together and dance their hearts out one last time. Any time that we as a staff were able to spend time with each other was super, super special, Hempen said. Osaka said that on its final evening, which was February 24th, he thanked all the staff for their hard work and turned off the lights one last time at the Empire Lounge and Restaurant. And in more Louisville news, Louisville announced that the city has partnered with McKinstry, that's a national construction and energy services firm, in order to develop a municipal decarbonization roadmap plan to reach the goal of complete decarbonization by 2030. According to a press release from Emily Hogan, who is assistant city manager, Louisville has been focused on improving the city's climate resiliency and lessening its carbon footprint. The press release states that decarbonization refers to the reduction or elimination of carbon emissions produced by these building systems that are traditionally powered using fossil fuel-based resources. This roadmap to decarbonization will help us create a more sustainable future and further our mission of protecting, preserving, and enhancing the quality of life here in Louisville said city manager Jeff Bourbon in the news release. Louisville and McKinstry will evaluate the feasibility and affordability of decarbonization by 2030 through electrification and expansion of other renewable energy options. The municipal decarbonization plan will then serve as an outline for a community decarbonization plan for residents and local businesses. And also, according to the press release, Louisville has partnered with Excel Energy to execute this community plan and potentially provide rebates as well as other incentives. And normally we don't talk snow sports on this broadcast, but here is an article entitled Rescue of Missing Snowboarder Near Nederland Took Nearly 12 Hours. The rescue of a snowboarder who went missing earlier this week near Nederland was a Herculean task that took nearly 12 hours, according to new information from the Boulder County Sheriff's Office. A news release stated that the snowboarder, that was a 50-year-old man from Louisville, had been recreating on U.S. Forest Service land near the Caribou town site when he was reported overdue Sunday evening. When the Sheriff's Office was notified of the possible overdue border early Monday morning, deputies tried to locate his vehicle in the Caribou area, but gusting wind and blowing snow prevented them from traversing the roads. 
And according to the news release, about 40 search and rescue personnel searched the area on snowmobiles and UTVs, and they were on foot using skis and snowshoes. Rescuers worked for nearly 12 hours in near whiteout conditions with wind gusts that reached up to 40 miles per hour. There were multiple agencies that assisted with the effort. The weather Monday morning into early afternoon was not conducive for air operations, the news release stated. And later, after the winds and the clouds lifted, a Colorado Army National Guard helicopter and drones were used for an air search. The release stated that the man did not know the area well. He got lost after he boarded down what he believed was Klondike Mountain. After dark, the man who has declined to be publicly identified built a small shelter for himself and kept warm by running in place. On Monday morning, he started hiking towards safety, and by 6.30 Monday evening, he was found by rescuers near the 5300 block of Caribou Road. He was taken to the hospital via ambulance, treated, and released. And in education news, BBSD students compete in Colorado State Technical Student Association Conference. 44 students from three Boulder Valley high schools competed in the recent Colorado State Technical Student Association Conference in Denver. Fairview High's Begum, Otan, and Sophia Brown won first place in board game design. Fairview students also placed in the top three in four categories. Audio podcasting, digital video production, drone challenge, and webmaster. Students on those teams were Alexa Brockway, Aryan Chowdhari, Jack Michaels, Ken Herman, Andy Hunchen, Logan Hunchen, Adi Dar, Elliot Marks, Jack Shiflett, and Ren Kaji. A team from Centaurus made it all the way to the semifinals in both theatrical set design and board game design. Those team members were Ella Krami, Ava Miller, Jet Mirandas, Kaylin Michelle, or Michael, Zach Wojtalik, and Dexy Payne. Monarch High received the Chapter of Excellent Silver Level Award. Monarch teams made it to the semifinals in Coding, Software, and Technology Bowl. The team advisors were Catherine Barnes at Centaurus, Tim Gessel at Fairview, and John Chilar at Monarch. Congratulations. To all the students and teachers involved, great effort. And turning to news from Lafayette, Lafayette is hosting a job fair for summer and seasonal work because Lafayette is hiring for summer and seasonal jobs. The city will hold a job fair this Sunday from 10 a.m. until 1 p.m. at the Bob L. Berger Recreation Center at 111 West Baseline Road. There are some positions available for Teenagers as young as 15 years of age, the job fair will also allow people to learn more about the available positions and to speak with staff. The city is looking for lifeguards and summer camp leaders, parks and open space technicians, and attendants for the golf course, as well as the great outdoors water park. Wages will start at $13 per hour. And you might have even seen this on the local evening news, but six California men have been indicted by a Boulder County grand jury and accused of stealing $1 million in construction equipment from sites across the Front Range. Carlos Davis D. 
David Campos, age 31, Samuel Armando Arevalo Aguilar, 31, Oscar Herrera, 58, Francisco Agueta, 24, Ricardo Rios, 35, Bayron Gomez, 23, were all indicted as part of Operation Wrecking Ball, which was headed by the Lafayette Police Department. I would personally like to thank everyone for all the hard work that resulted in a successful conclusion of this case, said Lafayette Police Chief Rick Bashar in a news release. We appreciate each of the assisting agencies. According to a news release from the Boulder County District Attorney's Office, the six defendants traveled from California to Colorado, and they would scout construction sites and then return to steal specialty tools and construction equipment. Prosecutors said the group stole more than $1.1 million in property. They also caused about $27,000 in property damage. Officials believe the group struck at sites in Monument, Aurora, Broomfield, North Glen, Denver, Greeley, Fort Collins, Firestone, Arvada, Loveland, Brighton, Lafayette, Commerce City, and unincorporated Boulder, Jefferson, Larimer, Douglas, and Larimer counties. Lafayette police were able to tie the incidents when it investigated two burglaries on October 29, 2021. They found members of the group were present at both sites at the time of the burglaries. A Boulder County grand jury returned an indictment on the six defendants on January 26, but then the indictments were sealed until recently when all six men were taken into custody in California. The defendants are all charged with numerous counts, including violations of the Colorado Organized Crime Control Act, burglary, theft, and criminal mischief, and bonds were set from $300,000 to $1 million each. All six defendants face a sentence of up to 24 years in prison on the co-CCA charges, as well as prison sentences on the remaining felony charges that can range from 1 to 12 years. Booking photos were not immediately available. This crime ring traveled to Colorado for the purpose of breaking into construction sites and stealing equipment, said Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty. The actions had an incredibly disruptive impact on the construction companies as well as the owners of the sites. Further conduct, these defendants will face serious consequences. I want to personally thank the detectives and the prosecutors who poured a tremendous amount of work into this massive investigation. They, along with their partners, have brought this crime ring to a halt. And now turning to some breaking entertainment news, F. Murray Abraham to appear at Boulder International Film Festival. Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham will make an appearance at the Boulder International Film Festival on Saturday. Abraham, who stars in the HBO comedy drama series The White Lotus, will be presented with BIFF's Outstanding Performer of the Year Award for the show. We are thrilled to be honoring F. Murray Abraham at BIFF this year, said Kathy Beek, who is BIFF's festival director and co-founder. He is an exceptionally talented actor who has had a fascinating career. We look forward to presenting Mr. Abraham with this award and hearing stories from his distinguished life in film and television during Saturday's event. The award presentation will take place at 5.45 p.m. and will be followed by an interview with Hollywood reporter, columnist, 
Scott Feinberg, which will be recorded live and aired on the Hollywood Reporters Award Chatter podcast. Abraham's extensive filmography includes Amadeus, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Actor for his role as Antonio Salieri. He also appeared in films such as The Name of the Rose, Finding Forrester, Scarface, Star Trek Insurrection, and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Abraham also received a Golden Globe nomination for his role in The White Lotus. Tickets for his appearance at the festival are $20 and can be purchased at www.biff1.com. Coal Creek Meals on Wheels to hold events to raise funds and awareness. Coal Creek Meals on Wheels will join the 21st Annual March for Meals Celebration. That's a month-long nationwide celebration of the program and the seniors who rely on the service to be healthy and independent. CCMOW will have a variety of activities throughout the month of March to raise funds and awareness. According to a press release on Wednesday from Brittany Vital, who is Development and Marketing Director at Coal Creek Meals on Wheels, the service is more important now than ever to seniors who rely on it due to inflation and residual effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen a huge increase in demand over the past three months, along with a significant decrease in the amount that our clients are able to contribute toward their meals, said Lark Rambo, who is the executive director of Coal Creek Meals on Wheels. More than 30% of CCMOW clients are unable to contribute any money toward their meals. The press release states that the average contribution is $2.46 per meal, but it takes $7.43 to produce each meal. CCMOW expects the cost of producing each meal to rise due to inflation as well as an increase in clients served. CCMOW served over 40,000 meals to those in need throughout Erie, Superior, Lafayette, and Louisville through its meal delivery program, Coal Creek Cafe, and Project Homecoming. More information about CCMOW can be found at www.coalcreekmow.org. And going to that website, there is some really interesting info about the Coal Creek Meals on Wheels for Lafayette, Louisville, Erie, Erie, and Superior. Here's a little information about their meal delivery program. We deliver hot, fresh, nutritious meals every weekday directly to your home in the communities of Lafayette, Louisville, Superior, and Erie. Our delicious meals are made from scratch daily by our talented culinary staff and can be customized to meet your special dietary needs. We serve anyone in need of a hot meal and a daily well check regardless of age or income. Who is eligible? CCMOW, which of course stands for Cold Creek Meals on Wheels. Serves anyone in need of a hot meal and a daily well check regardless of age or income or documentation status. We serve older adults and people living with disabilities or chronic physical and cognitive illnesses, as well as low-income families and anyone else in need. 
meal delivery schedule. Meals are delivered Monday through Friday between 11.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. by an amazingly screened and trained and trusted CCMOW volunteer. Each meal will include an entree, vegetable, carbohydrate, salad, and fruit or dessert. We are equipped to meet your specialized dietary or medical restrictions as well. Frozen and fresh items are delivered on Fridays for the weekend upon request. Caring delivery volunteers will provide clients with social interaction to combat isolation. There is a sliding scale based on self-reported monthly income and household size. And, of course, the meal application and menus are all found at www.coalcreekmow.org. The phone number for Coal Creek Meals on Wheels for serving Lafayette, Louisville, Erie, and Superior is 303-665-0566. Again, that's Meals on Wheels, Coal Creek, 303-665-0566. And turning to some news from Erie, Colorado, the Erie Board of Trustees adopts current fire codes. The Erie Board of Trustees on Tuesday night's meeting approved fire code updates. The fire code update will require an operational permit for maintaining an open fire on private and public spaces. The December 2022 code update requires fire suppressant sprinkler systems for all new construction in Erie, and that's one of the major changes to the fire code. Ed Koplinski, who is chief building official, said that fire codes are updated every three years to establish minimum requirements consistent with nationally recognized good operations. He said that the code also establishes a reasonable level of safety and protection for fires, explosions, and other dangerous conditions. Deputy Chief of Mountain View Fire Rescue, Jeff Webb, said that local jurisdictions have also adopted the fire code updates. Webb said that the updates are fire safety features that will help citizens and without adding excessive costs. It's just the little features that are going to help us do our job better, Webb said, Town Administrator Malcolm Fleming shared the Town Hall expansion and renovation project with the board. Fleming said that the cost for the project is significantly higher than first anticipated. At first, the project was estimated to cost $14.9 million in October, but now it's expected to cost over $21 million dollars. The extra funding will have to come from the 2024 and 2025 budgets. The board supports the option to do a full renovation and a three-story edition of Town Hall. Fleming said the price increase comes from the town's contractor for the project, Franson Pittman, who attributes the increase to design changes, correcting building code deficiencies, supply chain issues, as well as inflation. The renovation will allow Town Hall to remain in historical downtown Erie while still bringing up the building, bringing the building up to code. The expansion will also allow for new space to accommodate for a growing town staff 
as Erie continues to develop. The expansion will now be 13,000 square feet compared to the 2021 expansion plan of 8,900 square feet. Fleming said the expansion is bigger because it was assumed the existing boardroom could remain and there would be no changes to the stairs or the elevators. However, Fleming said that the town staff evaluated the current boardroom and said it could not be kept as originally planned. Fleming presented other options for the town hall renovation, such as a light renovation and three-story addition or building a different town hall building somewhere else in town. In more eerie news, oil and gas operator ordered to pay fine and other sanctions. K.P. Kaufman, which is an independent oil and gas company, was issued a $1.9 million fine and suspended from selling its products and required to clean production sites by the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission last month on February 15th. According to an oil and gas notification Wednesday from the town of Erie, KPK must complete remediation on the 58 sites that were included in the remediation plan, 25 of which are in Erie. If the fine is not paid and remediation is not complete within all sites in six months, KPK could lose the right to conduct business in the entire state of Colorado. During a COGCCC February 27th meeting, John Jacobs, who is a representative with KPK, requested more time to shut down its wells. Jacobs said that without the ability to sell its production and hence no revenue and with the $2 million penalty imposed on it, this assertion is impossible on its face. The commission decided back on February 1st that KPK had not made substantial progress on a November 2021 compliance plan, which back then addressed the oil company's previous violations. KPK had continued to sell oil and gas despite the February 15th order to suspend production. That's according to Caitlin Stafford, who is the Assistant Attorney General, which is representing, she's representing commission staff. Stafford also said that KPK agreed to the compliance plan. She said that KPK has not shown it is on the way to remediate and that KPK can meet the fine if they tried. KPK alone is responsible for compliance here. And if KPK cannot comply, staff is prepared to step in, Stafford said. COGCC Commissioner Brett Ackerman said that KPK did not follow the February 15th order to suspend operations and continued to sell gas and oil. Ackerman said that KPK has not shown a culture of compliance, does not properly report oil spills, and has not done proper remediation on sites that have problems. Ackerman said, given this blatant disregard, I would simply not feel that it's prudent if I were to assume that KPK is on the road to some sort of compliance. GOCCC Commissioner John Messner said that if KPK has has continued to be not in compliance, he said that there's a path for it to continue to operate in Colorado if it follows the compliance plan. The Erie Press release states that whether Wells and Erie will be decommissioned by 
KPK or by the Colorado Orphaned Well Program is still unknown. Remediation projects for wells in Erie are also unknown. Erie Communications and Community Engagement Director Gabby Ray said that the town is watching the situation closely. There are a lot of legal pieces and parts at play here, and we want to have all the information available. At this point, we see our role as twofold, monitoring how it all unfolds and keeping our residents in the loop with the situation, Ray said. And good news from Mountain View Fire Rescue Station. The station, number eight, is close to reopening after being shut down since May 2022 due to foundational issues and the building being considered hazardous. The building closed on May 13th of 2022, and staff and equipment were all transferred to other rescue stations. A recent tweet by the MVFR showed that the station has gone through renovations. Jeff Webb, who is Mountain View Fire Rescue's Deputy Chief of Support Services, said that the station will have a full crew when it opens again in mid to late March. He added that the opening of the station is weather-dependent as the concrete has to cure properly. Webb said that the building was built on expansive clay soils that, quote, lived up to their name, unquote. He said that the clay pushed the concrete around the building upwards, which made water run downwards into the basement and the crawl space and baseboards of the building. Webb said that the trapped water and moisture created mold that was hazardous to the crew. This building was actively trying to destroy itself, Webb said. He said at one point the driveway had risen four inches above the building. He noted that the fire truck had to climb up onto the driveway. The rising concrete also caused doors not to open and that one of the sliding glass doors was bowed during, due to the pressure of it being compressed. James Wood, captain at MVFR, used to work at station number eight before it had to shut down. He transferred over to the MVFR training division shortly before the station closed. Wood said that the concrete by the garage was rising and that fire trucks had to have a running start to get over that bump. There were some times where if you didn't have enough acceleration coming out of it, you would hit the bump and bounce back, Wood said. He also said that over his time at the station, some doors were slowly unable to open fully and you had to turn sideways to walk through. He said that this would cause problems for the fire rescue team who had to be able to move quickly without the worry of doors not opening. Wood said that the crew was resilient to the struggles and they always found solutions, but the problems got worse over time. He said the crew had used a grinder to move to move the concrete down so that the door could open properly and then paint along bumps in bright yellow so that the crew would not trip. We tried to mitigate the situation as long as we could until it finally got to a point where there was a breaking point, Wood said. He said the breaking point was the water line being pinched and the sewer line cracking, which caused sewage to collect beneath the building for a brief time. He said that the station was no longer a safe place for the crew to live. Wibb said that MVFR chose not to tear down the building, but instead fix it. Webb said that the remediation would be done at half the cost and half the time, and MVFR staff were confident that they could do the job right. MVFR paid for the $2.5 million remediation costs. 
Webb said the building was stable, but the soil for the driveway and concrete around the building was unstable. He said that the remediation consisted of replacing the expansive clay soil and replacing it with structural fill material. The fill will create a stable foundation for all the concrete to be poured. When the station closed five months after the Marshall Fire and Webb said that MBFR was sensitive about any anxieties about one less fire rescue station, Webb said that MVFR made sure that response times would still be adequate with the help of neighboring fire districts. We can't wait to be back in the community and serving them again, he said. And now, as we do usually every week, we turn to the left-hand Valley Courier for news from Niwot and Gun Barrel. Here's a profile on Dr. Richard A. Cross, entitled Gun Barrel Eye Doctor Celebrates Generations of Patients by Leonard Stetongia. Dr. Richard A. Cross is celebrating 30 years of his optometry practice in gun barrel. Dr. Cross has helped many people throughout his career, both here and in the Boulder area, and through the Eye Care Institute that he launched in Jamaica 27 years ago. That is enough time to treat generations of people. I'm seeing the children's children of patients, he observed. Dr. Cross grew up in Mason, Michigan, which is about 20 minutes from Michigan State University in East Lansing. His mother left her home in Jamaica to study microbiology at MSU. His father was at MSU studying art. Dr. Cross developed his connection to his mother's homeland from an early age. I got to spend summers with my grandparents in Jamaica growing up. I was always interested in vision. Dr. Cross explained, in the ninth grade, I got my first eye exam. Prior to that, I had been striking out in softball. And then, once I got my first pair of glasses, I was no longer striking out. I became fascinated with vision and how it worked. He wanted to get into healthcare and thought that it would be a nice field. After graduating from university, Dr. Cross began to work for Dr. Jane Woolford in Longmont. After a rewarding learning experience, he decided to open his own practice. He had met the brothers George and Everett Williams, for whom Williams Village at CU is named. While a college student, they wanted an optometrist in this area and were happy to have him relocate from Michigan. I was torn between opening in Michigan and opening in Boulder, he said, and was afflicted with the chief Niwot's curse. I lived in Niwot for a while. Having grown up in a small town, he decided on Gum Barrel because he liked the small town feel outside of downtown Boulder. Dr. Cross has been successful in part because of his ability to adapt to many changes in the technology of the field. It has been a fun career, he said. In a lot of ways, some of the devices that we have almost make you think of Star Trek because of the things that have come along so much, he continued. It's been rewarded, very rewarding to be a part of that. The business has been a great experience, and he has been assisted by a stellar staff for over the years. The connection to Jamaica strengthened early in his career. Dr. Cross explained it started when Dr. Wolford volunteered me to go with a group to Jamaica as an interpreter because of my ties. I was thinking that since they spoke English, I would do pretty well as the interpreter. 
a group of doctors made three trips there to focus on eye care for Jamaicans. They always had to turn away as many people as they were able to help. Out of that was born the Eye Health Institute, and we've been going back every year since 1996, he said. It has been a labor of love and dedication because running this nonprofit has been quite a workload on top of running the business in Gum Barrel. The Eye Health Institute partnered with the University of Michigan to develop a modular clinic that can be dropped anywhere in the world to be used for eye care, dental care, and eye surgeries. One was deployed in Jamaica for eye primary care. Two more were developed but are currently being used exclusively for eye surgery in Jamaica while their hospital is temporarily closed because of the COVID pandemic. Volunteer doctors and interns from the U.S., Canada, and Puerto Rico visit Jamaica to work in the clinics. This has been a great work experience for the interns, Dr. Cross explained. Many of the interns come back as doctors to teach the interns in subsequent years. The nonprofit collects donations of equipment, medicine, and money to support the work. Dr. Cross plans to expand on his work in the future. He would like to bring on an associate, giving him more time for the research that has come out of his work and to offer more specialties in his practice. He's always recruiting for more volunteers for Jamaica. I would love to have some non-medical volunteers go with us, he said. He would like someone to take photos, do interviews, and write the story of their work. Gumbarrel has been a great place to be a part of, Dr. Cross said. He will continue to be a source of compassionate care for many people, both here in Jamaica. And in more people profiles, Art Students of the Week, Gwen Ashek by Jean Hayworth. Twins, the philosopher Hippocrates once conjectured, is like one another for the following reasons. First, the places are alike in which they grow where they were secreted together, and where they grow by the same nourishment. And at birth, they reach together the light of day. Arts Student of the Week, who is Niwot High School freshman Gwen Ashak, might agree with Hippocrates, but only up to a point. I have one brother, Ashak said, and I am a twin. He does not enjoy art as much as I do, but we both play hockey, Growing up, the twins took the same classes at Boulder Country Day Middle School, and they would see each other all day long. But at Niwot High School, things have changed. It's kind of weird not to see him as much, but it also doesn't feel that abnormal, Ashak confessed. It was during middle school that Ashak developed her mother's interest in art, and she has continued that interest during her first year in high school. After completing beginning medals in 2D design, in her first semester, Ashak is taking intermediate medals and beginning ceramics this semester. That's all in addition to her art courses, and she's also taking um, pre-IB track of classes. That's pre-IB English, Spanish, History, Biology, and Math. Ashak chose art classes in middle school because that was one of the few options that caught her attention, and she has had an encouraging teacher. I really enjoyed just sitting and doing art while chatting with people, and it got me thinking about art more as I went into high school, she said. 
we didn't do a lot of stretching or drawing. We did a lot of oil, pastels, and then watercolor, and we worked with paint sometimes. In her Niwot High School medals class, Ash Hack has created a variety of pieces. Gwen is showing outstanding dedication and skills in the fine arts, said her medals arts teacher, Jason, Jason Watkins. Her attention to detail and ability to create fascinating works of art is incomparable for a freshman. Ashak accepts Watkins' compliment with modesty. I wouldn't say my work is fascinating. I would just say it fits the guidelines, but not necessarily fascinating. We have little jump rings of metal that we create a pattern out of them and make a bracelet, she said. Or we'll do like a layered metal project where you take a design that you want to do and you have to do two layers of metal for it and then incorporate a stone into it. It depends on the guidelines, but it's mostly jewelry pieces. We have silver, gold, and copper-toned metals that we'll cut out with, but then the little rings of metal that will come in all sorts of colors. Gwen has taken four arts courses for just her freshman year. It will be fascinating to watch her in future years and other courses, Watkins said. Although Ashak doesn't have a favorite artist, she has found inspiration in her 2D design teacher, Crystal Hines. I would ask her questions about what colors she thinks would work together, and then she would say two colors, and then I would really think about it, and then I would decide based on her opinion because I think she does know what she's talking about. thing is, is if you go to the museum, you can't really just look at the piece of art. If you're looking at a painting, you have to, well, like my ceramics teacher, Ms. Collier, said, you have to peel back the layers of what they're trying to do. The artist painted the sky first, and then they went in with a green color to do the trees. It's like you have to analyze it and put yourself in the artist's position almost to be able to really understand it. There is a camaraderie among the art students at Niwot High School that Ashak finds heartwarming. Art students are just one of the nicest groups of people in the entire school. And the teachers are just amazing. And they really help you along through the process. And you can ask whatever questions you want. They're really great people. Ashat contributes to that congeniality. Gwen is also an extremely wonderful person to have in class. She said, always welcome, warm, and cheerful. It's difficult for now to think about the future. I have interests that I could possibly make a career out of, Ashak said, but I feel like it would be hard. When I go to college, I want to get a degree where I can have a bunch of different different options. That's my only plan so far. I think I would like to travel. I've stayed in Colorado my whole life, and I think it's cool, but I would like to see other places. There are two other interests that occupy much of Ash Hack's time. The artist has two dogs, a chocolate lab named Moose and Maple, a yellow lab. And although she and her twin brother do not enjoy a common interest in art, they continue to share a passion for hockey. She plays in the Sport Stable Club League. That's my main sport, Ashak said. I don't know why I enjoy it. I just really do. And if you're wondering what's up with the Niwot Business Association, the monthly meeting was postponed until February 21st. That was after a conflict with Valentine's Day. And the website is currently in transition as businesses are updating their listings, which was made easier with a new platform. MBA President Eric 
Ferguson announced that the current NBA officers, who all ran unopposed his, have been reelected. with Ferguson again serving as president, with Deborah Reed Fowler as vice president, and Nancy Bureau as secretary, with Nancy Kuntz as treasurer. Other positions on the executive committee of the NBA include membership, streetscapes, education liaison, retail, and Cottonwood Square positions are filled by appointment. Ferguson also announced that Sarah Cione of Belle Terre has been appointed to serve on the Niwot Local Improvement District Advisory Committee as business representative, taking the place of Bruce Rabier, whose term has ended. Ferguson also thanked Catherine McHale for her five years of service as Economic Development Director of the MBA, noting that the job description description had changed a little bit since Niwat's Business Director District has fewer vacancies and more events will require more administrative support. Mikhail's position will end on March 31st, but she will continue to be involved with the Niwat Business Association, serving as champion for Dancing Under the Stars. That's the popular Friday night summer event in Cottonwood Square. Mikhail will also continue her marketing business, power, and purpose marketing based in Niwat. An announcement by the Wandering Jellyfish owners, Gerilyn Patterson and Carissa Mina, that their planned drag queen story time had generated calls and messages from people planning to protest and also with plenty of people it resulted in an outpouring of support for the event from the members of the business community who were present at the meeting it was also announced at the boulder international film festival which we all know is march 2nd through the 5th will include a, a film about suicide focusing on the loss of former Niwot resident Liv Kunick, entitled My Sister Liv. That film is a production of the Liv Project and is described on the website My Sister Liv, reveals the realities of stigma, the struggles of mental health, and the aftermath for the survivors left behind in a suicide. As a family learns to cope with their new normal, they find hope, in filling a gap around fearlessly talking about mental health and ultimately saving young lives. The film will also be showed at the Hampton Inn on March 7th and 8th. And now returning to Boulder County News, Impact on Education prepares students for jobs in Career Readiness Academy. Ann Cooper, who is a Boulder real estate agent, remembers the high school drama teacher who cared enough to teach her how to shake hands, look people in the eye, and sit up straight during a job interview. So on Wednesday, she shared those same skills with students at Boulder High School during a series of round-robin mock interviews. What that teacher taught me just stuck with me my whole life, she said, and here's my chance to be that teacher. The mock interviews are part of a series of eight after-school workshops for high school students through Impact on Education's Career Readiness Academy. About 50 students in three high schools, Boulder, Centaurus, and New Vista, are participating. The program was open to sophomores and juniors with priority given to students who qualify for federally subsidized lunches or are facing financial hardship. 
And along with learning school skills, students receive a $250 stipend. Impact on Education piloted the program a year ago with 20 high school students expanding to more students this year. The sessions teach students workforce readiness and leadership skills, preparing them to pursue summer job and internship opportunities. It teaches us things that we can use in life, said Boulder High sophomore Ruby Devora. The workshops are led by guest speakers on a variety of topics from resume building to professional communication, including best practices for emails, phone calls, and texting. Workforce Boulder County also shared data on area jobs and highlighting opportunities where employers are struggling to hire and fill positions. This is a great time to be looking for a job, said Impact on Education Executive Director Allison Billings. You can choose something that will help you grow, she told the students. Billings and the volunteers also told students that they can learn something from every job. The volunteers shared both their current job titles and their first jobs, including bookstore stocker, arcade worker, grocery store cart pusher, clothing factory worker, restaurant hostess, construction worker, and ice cream scooper. The volunteers offered lots of tips, including the favorite questions and the importance of being authentic. A volunteer told the story of interviewing two people for a job, one who started out sobbing because of a bad day but pulled herself together and one who was composed but gave robotic answers. And the first candidate got the job. Other tips included do your homework on the company, recognize that an interview is a two-way conversation, and don't forget to write a thank you email or note. You're interviewing them too, Cooper said. You may not want the job. Questions the volunteers asked included why the students wanted the position, what their goals are, and what's something that they've accomplished that they're proud of. They've also started the interviews with that dreaded, oh, tell me so. Tell me about yourself question. I truly understand the importance of questions like, whoa, tell me yourself about yourself, said Junior Jorge Moreno. And after interviewing Junior Azen Barrios Palicios Luna, volunteer Cameron Callas offered praise plus a suggestion to prepare by thinking of likely interview questions. Next, she said, think of examples that you can give about your projects and experiences when answering those questions. Have those points ready so you can tell a well-rounded story, said Callis, who works in marketing for the Sterling Rice Group. That's what helped me most. Barrios Palacios Luna, who is considering majoring in fine arts in college and is interested in social justice, called the Career Readiness Academy a great opportunity. Our classes don't really show us this kind of stuff, she said. It's great that we are learning it. And here's some health news in case you're a member of Kaiser Permanente Colorado. While thousands of Kaiser Permanente Colorado customers are getting refunds after a computer error last year, at least one family says that they've received unexpected bills. The software that calculates how much Kaiser members have paid toward their deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums miscounted, causing about 7,600 about 7,600 people to overpay. And those people now receive refund checks or credits toward any remaining bills. 
Jason and Jennifer Wilde of Denver said that they experienced the opposite error. They said they were told that they had hit their out-of-pocket maximum in September, which seemed correct since they had paid their share of bills for several emergency room and urgent care visits, as well as their second child's birth. They took their three-year-old to urgent care for illnesses several times in the last months of the year out of an abundance of caution, and they didn't expect to be charged because they had already paid the maximum, Jason Wilde said. Then in Jackson, in then Jason Wilde said that in January they received bills totaling $2,370. Had they known that they hadn't hit the maximum, they would have waited before seeking care, he said. From their point of view, they're saying, well, you're not being charged any more money, but they're not taking into account that people made their decisions based on wrong information, he said. Elizabeth Whitehead, spokeswoman for Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente of Colorado, said she couldn't discuss the Wilds' billing, but she noted it's common for members to have questions about what they owe for their care. She said she couldn't say how many Kaiser members linked their confusion to the software error, and she said someone would follow up with the Wilds. Members are liable for their usual cost shares only and will not owe additional pageant any payments resulting from this error, she said. Jennifer Wilde also said she filed a complaint in January but hasn't heard back until Wednesday. At that point, a billing representative said that she could wipe out the Wilds' out-of-pocket costs from October through December when they believed that they had already paid the maximum. It's good for their family to have the charges removed, Jennifer Wilde said, but she isn't sure if the underlying problem has been fixed. I don't know what they're doing for other people, she said. And I don't know if this is the news that you've been waiting for, but Northern Colorado will soon get its first In-N-Out burger after the company in mid-February closed the site in Loveland for a future restaurant. The new restaurant will be at 14500. That's... 14500 Fall River Drive in Centura Marketplace, according to Larimer County Property Records. The California-based fast food chain finalized the $1.3 million purchase on the site, which was previously occupied by another restaurant. Mike Abate, Assistant Vice President of Real Estate and Development for In-N-Out Burger confirmed in an emailed statement that the company will be building the new restaurant soon, but could not confirm an opening time frame. Once we break ground on a new location, it usually takes eight to nine months to build a restaurant and then open it for business, he wrote. We appreciate that our customers in Loveland who have shared their anticipation with us, we look forward to having this great location to serve them in the near future. You've been listening to the Boulder County News, and my name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.